Hello and welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. Um, this is our Thursday uh, Revolutionary Left Book Club piece. This is part seven of Bobby Seale's book, Seize the Time, the story of the Black Panther Party. My name is Rob and um, yeah, I'm here to Learn about the Black Panther Party in their own words. I am Don. You're not going <laughs> to see my face today. I'm very bald, and I'm not ready for you to see me like that. Oh, my God. Hi, I'm Trisha. You'll get to see my face in a minute. I'm almost there. <laughs> almost. 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 So uh, we, uh, we have a Patreon if you like what we're doing. For that matter, if you like what we're doing and you want to be part of our conversation or part of our book club, uh, just message the page. We're more than happy to you know, have you on and to hear your opinions. Um, so first of all, if you like what we're doing and you want to support us uh, materially, 
Uh, we do have a Patreon as well as a PayPal. The Patreon is patreon.com slash for we are many. Um, yeah. Uh, we have a website for wearemany.org. Obviously, we have the Facebook page. Most of you are probably seeing us on. Uh, we have two groups, the For We Are Many Education and Discussion Group and the For We Are Many Mutual Aid Organizing Group. So if you need help or you are trying to start a mutual aid organization in your area, that's where we go to try to organize it. Um, so we've been kicking this off with a, a video of a speech from a prominent Black Panther. And today we're going to start off our piece with Kathleen Cleaver. We do not own the rights to that little jingle there. All the people don't have freedom, all the people don't have justice, and all the people don't have power, so that means none of us do. Provide the leadership to the people's revolution so we can take this country and change it. Turn it upside down and put the last first and the first last. Not only for black people, but for all people. Okay. Could you tell me uh, what you think of this 50th anniversary reunion of the Black Panther Party? I had nothing to do with the planning of the 50th anniversary, and I came out here, and frankly, it blew my mind. The Oakwood Museum, the whole museum, the exhibit, this program that looked like a small-town phone book about the Black Panther 50th anniversary is so well-organized, so impressive, and drew such big crowds. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And that it's great to be in Oakland where the Black Panther Party started. And I think Oakland is a place where there's a lot more love and awareness for the Black Panther Party than other places. Because it started here and so many people who were Panthers lived in Oakland. In fact, there was one of the Panthers named Gail Bell and I became friends. And we used to talk about the fact that there's something about Oakland that all these people are joined to the black are drawn to the Black Panther Party, so we call them the Oakland Specials. <laughs> and people in Oakland, the special people in Oakland, were wanted to be in this revolutionary movement that was so innovative and exciting. And yeah, it was dangerous, but that's not what at the first go round. It was something that happened in Oakland, and it was something that was amazing. And we love being Panthers. And I had to leave very quickly uh, when he started because Elgin was the country and then I left with him. But the movement here grew and grew and it transformed and it's just very much a part, even though it became a national and international movement, Oakland is the key where it started. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think is the legacy that the Black Panther Party left in America? Yeah, the struggle. We... A lot of people are intimidated about change, intimidated by the prospect of taking on the state. And I can understand that they are intimidated because the state and this police forces and its information, you know, information dominance can be intimidating. But we were so young and so much a part of what was called the Vietnam War era that we weren't intimidated. And there was movements in Vietnam, there was movements in France, there was movements here, there was a lot of young people who became uh, animated and excited. So it seemed like we had a shot at changing the world. And that's very, very unusual. But I didn't know it was unusual. 
I was right in the middle of it, right there with everybody else, and it was great. It was the most energetic, imaginative, lively movement I'd ever seen, and probably many people had ever seen. So it encourages you to participate. And people in the Black Panther Party, when I was here, when I left in 69 to join LGBT, was by that time a fugitive and in Algeria. And it was, it was exciting. It meant something. And people around the world, people in Cuba, people in Algeria, people in Vietnam, they loved the Panther Party. People copied it. They had Black Panthers in Israel. They had Dalit Panthers in India. They had Panthers in the Caribbean. And so whatever it was that the Black Panther Party represented, which is essentially young people and not very necessarily educated, not necessarily in the elite, came together collectively and demanded that conditions be different. The most intriguing to me of the people I met in various parts of the world who adopted the Black Panther Party as a model were the ones in Israel. And the reason they adopted it because they were Moroccan and other Jews who were not from Europe. And so when they come and migrate to Israel, he said, they put us in the worst places. They give us the most rotten jobs. They put us in places where we're more likely to be attacked. They just held us in contempt. He said, we got to do something about this. We got to push them back. We're going to be in a black Panthers." <laughs> and they had t-shirts that said Panthers. They had long hair. So that really struck me that the black Panthers actually were a model for oppressed people around the world. And then in India, the Dalits. I met one of the leaders of the Dalit Panthers at the Pan-African Cultural Festival in Algeria in 2009. And he said that, he said, you know, in America, your people may have been oppressed maybe 150, 200 years. He said, in India, the Dalits have been oppressed for thousands of years. Mm. But they created something called the Dalit Panthers. Yes, 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 a good example. Can you Give me an idea of any examples or lessons that can be uh, gleaned from the Black Panther Party history that might be useful today. You mean for America? Yes, for America. Well, I think all of the 10-point program is a blueprint for what's wrong in this country. What we wanted to change, we want power to determine the destiny of our own black community. That's point one. Do we have that power? We still want to have the power to determine the destiny of our own black community. Uh, we want land, housing, bread, justice, and peace. We still need those things. And so it's a valid blueprint for how you can focus your change. Now, I'm not sure everything should be done by one organization. In fact, I think you could have 10 organizations. One for economic justice, one for ending police violence and brutality. Uh, one for housing. And I think we do see in our communities sort of a proliferation of groups. But the thing that made the Black Panther Party different, I think it wasn't just about social change. It was young people who were willing to risk their lives and they used uh, the, the, the techniques and tools of people who don't have a lot of resources. Art, music, uh, some community patrols. So this was not an expensive operation. This was very, very grassroots. I think what made it phenomenal was the 
high level of organization and intelligence of the original group that became Black Panthers. These are the extremely brave, extremely imaginative, extremely caring, and they, their energy attracted all kinds of people, and it also attracted an enormous amount of police hostility, which created a, a drama. And all of a sudden, it, it blew up. Okay. So do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with us? I think that there needs to be another generation of Black Panthers, not necessarily in the name. They don't have to take that name. It's probably a better idea that they don't. As a matter of fact, there was a group in Newark that I got to know that was started at Howard University by students, including Ras Baraka, who was Amiri Baraka's son. And they named their organization, I think they called it Black Nia Force or something like that. And they said, they considered naming it the Black Panthers. And they said, but why do we want to take on that baggage? <laughs> so I thought that was brilliant. They said, we want to do the same things, but we want to have a different name. So I think it's the principles of the Black Panther Party and the 10 point platform of the Black Panther Party and the energy of the Black Panther Party that is a model, but it's probably a better idea to use a different name for the organization and not necessarily generate whatever it is, hostility, exaggerated um, popularity, you know, the, 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 leave the Black Panthers in history and continue the activity under a more modern name. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. agree? Yes. That's a modern name? Yes. <laughs> What's in the name? Well, a lot. A lot, but there's a lot of there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of violence attached to the way the Black Panther Party was treated. That's kind of yeah. why, yeah. you know, maybe that's not the best thing. That's why I was so impressed with these students from Howard. They say, no, we want to do the same thing, but we're not going to use that name. Sorry that the volume was kind of low for the beginning of that. I didn't realize how low it was. Um, I hear it just fine with my, you know, studio headphones on. Uh, anyway, um, for those of you that are just joining us, this is our Revolutionary Left Book Club. We do it every Thursday. Right now we are on uh, part seven of our pieces on Bobby Seale's book, Seize the Time, the Story of the Black Panther Party. To, uh, the, the link to the PDF of the book is in the description of the video, no matter what platform you're watching it on, or if you're on uh, podcast platforms in the future, it'll be the same way. We are on page 108, uh, the beginning of the chapter, Serving Time at Big Greystone. And uh, if you feel funny about me like redistributing this book, I want to read the copyright disclaimer um, from the table of contents. In Bobby Seale's own words, fuck copyright, feel free to mirror this book, print it out, quote parts of it, or better yet, act upon it. So that's exactly what we're aiming to do here. Once again, that's page 108, serving time at Big Greystone. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Yeah, I know. The question mark was because I was still scrolling back to it. Ah, um, indeed. Uh, so I guess we'll, 
we'll check on the comments. Um, we have James, we have Emily, uh, we have Ron, we have Natalie, we have quarter marks. Hello, everyone. I'm glad to see everybody here. Um, Hello. Yeah, let's uh, let's get this underway then. Yeah, let's get to it. Let's get down to the brass tacks. Anybody, uh, anybody want to go first, or is it me? Uh, you want to rock paper scissors? Not really. Oh, <laughs> there goes all the fun. I know, right? Trisha, you're muted. I see your I see your lips moving. I forgot about that for a second. Um, I'm still trying to pull the. the <clears throat> okay, okay. Rob, I'm going to read. <laughs> the first page. Indeed. Indeed. <sighs> After Sacramento, we made a deal. Myself and a few other brothers had no previous records. Would serve for some time for disturbing the peace or something like that. And all the other brothers who were on parole or probation would be cut loose. We weren't guilty of anything. But we made the deal to save the other brothers from going to state prison. Warren Tucker and I served the longest sentences, six months each. At first, they had me in Sacramento County Jail, but later they transferred me to the Almadia County Jail at Santa Rita. I was in maximum in the maximum security wing of a place everybody calls Big Gray Stone because the buildings are made of this drab gray stone. Huey tried to visit me in Sacramento County Jail after I went in to serve my sentence in August. 1967 but when Huey arrived I'd been transferred down to Big Greystone I remember Huey saying to me just before I went to jail you can do six months for the party can't you sure I can I told Huey I can do it easy on the morning of October 28th 1968 I was lying on my bunk inside one of those jive cells and they have a Big Greystone some suddenly somebody hollered Bobby Seal Bobby Seal it was one of the trustees walking on the catwalk above me. Bobby Seal, where you at? He called. I said, over here, cell 82. This cat walked up and said, two Panthers had a shootout and one cop is dead. And one of your boys got wounded, I think. I said, what? You know who it was? He said, no, we, we don't have information on who it was yet. They shot him, though. That's what one of the bulls said. Lots of names flashed through my head, but not Huey's. I thought it might be Sherman Forte, Bobby Hutton, Reggie Forte, Orlando Harrison, any one of the brothers who went to Sacramento with us. Who could it have been? Who could it have, who could have been shot? I remember saying to myself, I knew Oakland Tribune would have the information. That's the only thing they let us read in jail. They just cram that junk right down your throat. They won't let any other papers in. I waited reading some portions of a book, waiting for a newspaper. Finally, around 12 o'clock, a trustee brought me the paper. There was Huey P. Newton's picture on the front page. He was on a stretcher. Paper said he had been shot. 
At first, I worried if he was all right. Read the pig's lion story. Then I thought about getting another, getting the brother out. They were going to charge Brother Huey with murder. All kinds of schemes went through my, went through my mind about busting up the jail, or busting up the court. I had to, I had to appear in court, and I thought about walking in there and blasting away at every judge, every bailiff, and the clerk. Blasting at all those pigs, walking over Huey and walking out. I had scenes in my head of crowds of people in the court. Well, Huey was there in the crowd of people. I would dress him up like a I would dress him up like a woman. I'd put some kind of dress on him and let him walk out with another dude, disguised as man and wife. Pigs would never figure that figure that out, I thought. Remember that Huey had told me many times that he never wanted a murder charge where you have to be on death row. He would describe death row as a form of righteous torture. You sit on death row three, four, five years, not knowing when you're going to die. That in itself is torture. But real torture comes, he said, when they're about to walk you up to the gas chamber in five or ten minutes before the time of execution. Somebody would give you a stay of execution for one month or one year. He said, that's righteous torture. I began to intensely count my days left in jail so that I could get out and work to get Huey free. I was scheduled as far as I knew to get out of jail sometime between January 8th and 15th. It wasn't very clear. I'd gone into jail on August 8th and on the Sacramento bust. It was now October 28th, and I had to wait until January 8th to get out. I had read the papers. I had also read the protests over police brutality about a week or two before, in which the pigs busted up the heads of the anti-draft demonstrators who went forth to close down the draft office in Oakland. Chief Gain and his pigs, highway patrolmen, and others from the surrounding cities beat the heads of these peaceful demonstrators. They were peaceful demonstrators. They'd sit down in front of the draft office and say, I'm not violating the law by sitting down. Or, I apologize. They'd sit down in front of the draft office and say, if I'm not violating the law by sitting down. Or, I don't know why I keep slipping not in there. It clearly says, if I'm violating the law by sitting down, then arrest me. And they would go to jail peacefully. But Chief Gain and the pigs wanted to beat their heads. These demonstrators called a press conference after what had happened to Brother Huey and said that the, the racist dog policeman who attacked Huey P. Newton must be removed and Huey must be freed. Solidarity and support were shown in this article. They said that the pigs who jumped on the anti-draft demonstrators in Oakland there were the same pigs who vamped on Huey. The demonstration at the induction center had taken place a few weeks before. I also re read that Judge Stats held court to arraign and charge Huey in the hospital room where he was getting better from the gunshot wound. Some Panther brothers had also gone to the hospital, but it was surrounded. The pigs asked them what they wanted, and the Panther brothers said, we come to get Huey. 
six or seven brothers got busted. These brothers really loved Healy. They came to get the Minister of Defense. They came to see about Huey, to set Huey free. Pig jumped up with a shotgun in front of them, stopped them and asked them, what do you want? And one of the Panthers decided to the reverend, rev, ah. Dedicated to the revolutionary struggle. Ah, thank you. Dedicated to the liberation of black people, looked at this pig and told him, we come to get Huey. That pig must have shit. These were crazy panthers. Indeed. Take over, Rob. All right. Sunday mornings, when you're in jail, you have to go to the day room to hear some puritanical thinking. Christian preacher preach a bunch of bullshit about how we were wrong and we must seek for the Lord. How ironic can this shit get? There's some preacher in the day room saw with over 200 cats crowded in. This guy is just blabbing out of the mouth and the brothers aren't even listening to him. These are, are there are guards standing on each side telling you to be quiet and listen. You get mad at those pigs, especially when you've got a minister of defense like Huey P. Newton. You get real mad when you know there's a hell of a revolutionary leader who wants to give the land and bread back to the people. You just want to break out of that joint. You want to go and do something about Huey. That's the way you feel. There were a lot of brothers in jail who suddenly all wanted to be Panthers. They had listened to me before, but now they wanted to be Panthers. They saw there was hope. They looked at Huey as a hero of the people. Huey was so beautiful. He'd turn around and tell the people, you're the heroes. You're the heroes, people. So let's unite, go forth in unity so we can get land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and finally some peace. I thought and wondered and read the papers and schemed about what to do for Huey. There were demonstrations for Huey and people showed up in court. Panthers jammed into the courtroom and 200 people besides jammed the hallways. They had literature and information concerning Huey P. Newton. They wanted him to be set free, cut loose. They ran down how unjust this racist decadent system is and said it couldn't do this to Huey. I made up my mind and said that when I got out, I was gonna work myself to the bone harder than I ever had before. Our first objective and first goal, working with Eldridge and the other Panthers, would be to mobilize 5,000 people standing around in the courthouse for Huey. Then if necessary, we might have to bust him out of jail because Huey's gotta be set free somehow. That's what I was saying, that's the way I felt. That's what I became dedicated to as I sat there in jail waiting to get out. Five, five weeks later, I was talking to Huey. I had to appear in court a couple of times, somewhere around the latter part of November. They transported one from Greystone to the county jail in downtown Oakland. I was in tank B and Huey was in tank A. He sent a couple of messages to me like power, power to the people. The brother also sent me some cigarettes. That was kind of funny when I thought about it. Here's this brother on a murder charge, which Huey never wanted and he sends me cigarettes. I had another court date, December 8th. Once again, they drove me from Greystone to the jail in Oakland where the court was and they put me in tank B. I knew tank B was next door to tank C. That's the hospital tank where I figured Huey was. I knew that you could holler from tank B to tank C, although you couldn't see anybody. I asked the trustee, is Huey P. Newton still in tank C, the hospital tank? He said, yes, he is. And I went to the bars as close as I could get to tank C and I started hollering, hey, Huey. <laughs> yeah, he said, this is Bobby. Hey, man. The brother was glad to be able to talk and I was glad to be able to talk to him. 
He told me uh, about a few things that happened, a few things that he'd read in the paper about some brothers getting in a shootout with some pigs and how the pigs ran their car. He uh, ran down how I wasn't to say anything around a couple of jive trustees who he knew would turn words around and snitch to the man. I told him how the pigs came out of the jail three days after he'd been shot, or out to the jail, sorry, not out from the jail. Out to the the jail three days after he'd been shot and how they were trying to say that I knew where the nine millimeter gun was that Huey was supposed to have had the night he got shot. I told Huey I had nothing to say to the pig, that I took the first, uh, the Fifth Amendment on it. One of them was a African American pig, a bootlicker pig, who acted like he wanted to jump me. So I just backed up against the wall, embraced myself, and got ready to fight this pig right in the middle of this jive seven by seven graystone cell. Huey and I uh, hollered around there in the Oakland jail, talking to each other for a long time, and then I had to go downstairs and appear in court. They brought me back upstairs around noon and one of the trustees told me that I would be able to see Huey in a few minutes. I said, what? He said, yeah, because they bring him around to tank B in the aisle over there. The entrance is to the side. And I said, right on brother, right on. I get to see brother Huey P. Newton. That's good. That's good. I was really happy. I wanted to, I really wanted to see the brother because I haven't seen him since August 8th, the day I went to jail. I just wanted to see how he was doing. He walked around and he looked like he was in pretty good shape. He lifted his hands to the bars and we grabbed each other's hands, shook each other's hands real tight and hard. I mostly just wanted to look at the brother and see if he was all right because Huey was out of sight. It was just good to see him. (laughs) It was just a filling thing for me. I felt like we were close to some kind of freedom for Huey when I saw that cat. We had to free Huey. I have to admire the dedication and respect that the rest of the Panthers had for Huey, honestly. I feel like uh, loyalty on that level is hard to come by. Anyway. Peter and their respect in so many ways. Right. The next time I came up to court, I saw him again. I was in the day room and he was locked in an aisle across the hallway. He walked up to the end of the aisle and spoke through that chicken shit hole the pig set up for visitors. I said, go on and take your visits, brother. It was good to see him. I looked and saw some of the visitors, uh, his girlfriend, Laverne and Orleando, and with others through that little hole in my side. They all came over to see me after visiting with Huey. When we were hollering before the visitors came, Huey had asked me how long I had to go. I told him that I might be out January 8th or January 15th, as close as I could figure. And I said, well, brother, you've got to be set free. Something's got to be done and we're going to have to do it. I hope I can do it. He reassured me, you can do it, Bobby. You can put it together, you and Eldridge and everyone. You can do it. It made me feel good. I had to relate to that because I had to believe and understand I could do something to help the brother get free. You sit in a gray stone in a seven by seven cell all day long. Then they move you and put you in another seven by seven cell. They let you go to the day room every three days. And in the course of an hour, you go to the day room, take a shower, shave, and then they put you in another one of the same seven by seven cells somewhere. You get used to it, especially when you know you haven't got too much time to do. A lot of cats naturally get pissed off at Greystone. I took mine out uh, on thinking about the organization and what I could do for the organization and for the revolutionary struggle. 
During those last weeks, October 28th to December 8th, I thought about ways to free Huey P. Newton and about the fact that we have to get this brother free somehow or another. This brother's got to get cut loose. He's got to beat this case because these pigs are trying to jack him up and they're trying to jack the Panther Party up. December 8th, after I got back from court, they called me out of the bullpen and I walked back down the hall to change out of my civilian clothes that I used to appear in court back in those regular jail clothes. There are three security prisons there, really. Big Greystone, which is max security, seven by seven cells, and uh, Santa Rita, farm work for sentencing inmates, or Little Greystone, where there's barracks and compounds, maximum security, and you can walk all around. Uh, most of the cats in Big Greystone have felony cases or have gotten into fights and have been put over there. Mostly those in Little Greystone have smaller cases and are unsentenced. I knew one thing through that routine of going back and forth to court. If you go to Big Greystone, you aren't allowed to wear any shoes. When you go to Little Greystone, you put on shoes because you walk around. The shoes are very significant. I stepped forward, took off my coat, and the pig wrote down the color of my jacket, my slacks, and my pinstripe brown shirt. He looked at a list of the jail clothes I was supposed to get and said shoes. And I said, no, you got it wrong. No shoes. I'm at Big Greystone. He says, nope. He said, here it says shoes. Huh. I'm in Big Greystone. You got it wrong. He says, shoes seal. And I said, all right. Uh, they have some special shoes they give you, brogans. Um, I don't know. I've never heard the term brogans before, but I know that... Uh, Natalie said loyalty and solidarity, and that, that's a good distinction. I appreciate that. But these shoes, though, if you've ever been to a county jail, they're literally Bob Barker brand shitty plastic flip-flops. They're the worst shoes that you've ever fucking seen. But yeah, I would assume that they're like that. Uh, I told the pig, wait a minute, I have to wear shoes? And he said, yeah. And then I said, am I going to Little Greystone? And he said, yeah, I guess so, in a real snotty way. And I said, well then, I can't wear those brogans. I took my sock off and showed him my left foot. My left foot is about three quarters of an inch shorter than my right foot because I was hit by a car when I was 13. I said, this is a skin graft you see on top of my foot. Those brogans are gonna rub the skin graft and next thing you know, I'll run around infected. These shows, shoes are too heavy. I'd rather wear my regular civilian shoes. So he said, okay, let's go. So I dressed, put my shoes on, climbed on the wagon. He took me over to Little Greystone, dropped me off, and assigned me one of those jive-ass barracks with barbed wire fences around it. I went inside looking for Warren Tucker because he was supposed to be serving time there. I couldn't figure the whole switch out, and I really wanted to talk to Tucker. I inquired around asking all the brothers if they had seen a brother, a Black Panther named Warren, <coughs> Warren Tucker, Tucker, but they didn't seem to know. So I settled back to get my bunk, bunk straight and get bedding from the trustee. Some brothers were singing some soul music, it was nice the way they were putting the harmony to it, putting the real soul into it. I lay there listening to them for about 45 minutes, thinking about Brother Huey and about how we were going to get him out. Then one of the guards walked inside the barracks and said, Seal? And I said, yeah. Let's go. You're bailed out. You're out on bail. And I said, uh-uh, you got the wrong man. Seal? My name's Seal. That's right. Well, it's supposed to be Seal. You got the wrong man. I can't get out of jail till January 8th. Maybe you're looking for someone else with the same name as mine. Who's got a name similar to mine? Some brother said, there's a cat in here named Scales. 
That's who you're looking for, man. Well, the bull said, I don't know. Let me go check. I rolled over and almost fell asleep. About five or 10 minutes later, the pig came back. Let's go, seal. It's you. Now wait just a goddamn minute, I said. You dudes got Huey P. Newton in jail. You dudes put all kinds of schemes to mess up our party, to mess up black people, to kill and murder them. I don't have nothing to do with that, he said. Regardless of that, you're telling me I'm supposed to be out on bail, and I say I can't be out on bail because I can't get out till January 8th. I'm going to be honest. You know that me and a lot of the people want to free Huey P. Newton. We want to do a lot of work in the black community and get rid of you pigs. All you cats want to do is say I'm out on bail, take me somewhere, say I escaped, and then give me a year and a half, so later. I don't know anything about that, Seal. You just come on. All right, goddammit, let's go. But I know damn well I can't get out of jail till January 8th, and that's even with good time. I can't get out of jail till January 8th. I got sentenced to six months. It's impossible for me to get out. I went in August 8th, and now it's only December 8th. The only time I can get out is by January 8th, and that's with 30 damn days of good time. I argued with the cat. I didn't believe him, but I jumped up and put on my shoes. We walked all the way up to the discharge place, and I argued, argued with the lieutenant. I argued with the captain. I argued with the sergeants and everybody else. I wanted to see some definite proof. They showed me a teletype message from Sacramento where I had been sentenced, which said they couldn't hold me any longer, that my time was up. I snatched that teletype message and looked at it. Meanwhile, some more brothers were coming through the bullpen. I told them, hey, brothers, remember, you see this discharge here? It says I'm out of jail, and I wasn't expecting to get out of jail till January. But you remember that all these cops came down here, and I said that I wasn't supposed to get released. You remember that? And the brothers said, right on, Bobby. Right on. We understand. Um, so, Trisha, you got your your shit functioning yet? You want to take over for a minute? Sure. Uh, brothers, I'll catch you later on. Then I said to the pigs, okay, let's go. The pigs were very upset about why Bobby Seal wasn't going to leave jail. I was tired of the pigs and the power structure scheming on us. I was very apprehensive about them saying that I was discharged because I didn't really believe it. I called my father and waited for an hour and a half. He came and picked me up and took me home. My wife was in the car. When I saw her, I remembered that I told her she was going to have to be ready to sacrifice when I got out of jail. She said she understood. Now she was in the car and she brought little Sigoli with her. He was about a year and a half old. I had to get used to the idea that all of a sudden I was out of jail on my way home. I had to do a hell of a lot of things now to try to help Huey get out of jail. Before, I'd just been sitting in the cell day after day thinking about things to be done, but now it was time to implement it. Huey P. Newton always said, unite theory with practice, unite your ideas with practice by applying those ideas. And I think, I I just want to interject real quick to say that's an important quote. So I'm going to, I'm going to repeat it. Huey P. Newton always said, unite theory with practice, unite your ideas with practice by applying those ideas so like the idea here is like it's important to read theory it's important it's really important to read theory but theory without practice is useless actions speak louder than words right 
course, the first thing I decided to do when I got out of jail was to make love with my wife. Then I'd call everybody else up. It can be bad for a man's mind when he's locked up and taken away from good loving and good screwing. Uh, and let's see that. Are we reading the executive mandate number one statement by the Minister of Defense delivered May 2nd, 1967 at Sacramento, California State Capitol building? I mean, technically speaking, we read it when they did it, but I think we should read it again because it's important. But Natalie said the volume is really low, and I think she's talking about you, uh, Tricia. Okay, not much I can do about that. My good headset, the battery died on it, so I had to put the old one on. Um, Can you talk louder? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I certainly do have a big mouth. Is that better? Ah, if you want, I can I can read this section, Trisha. The the speech. I'm super excited about it. So if you want to go for it. I mean, I'm not super excited <laughs> about anything, to be honest with you. But I'm here for it. Right. <laughs> all right go ahead i'll take that go over at the next section all right all right this is executive mandate number one as delivered second may 1967 at sacramento california at the state capitol building by huey p newton <clears throat> the black panther party for self-defense calls upon the american people in general and the black people in particular to take careful note of the racist California legislature, which is now considering legislation aimed at keeping the black people disarmed and powerless at the very same time that racist agencies throughout the country are intensifying the terror, brutality, murder, and repression of black people. At the same time, the American government is raging a racist war of genocide in Vietnam. The concentration camps in which Japanese Americans were interred during World War II are being renovated and expanded. Since America has historically reserved the most barbaric treatment for non-white people, we are forced to conclude that these concentration camps are being prepared for black people who, have, who are determined to gain their freedom by any means necessary. The enslavement of black people from the very beginning of this country the genocide practiced at the American practiced on the American Indians and the confining of the survivors on reservations, the savage lynch, lynching of thousands of black men and women, the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and now the cowardly massacre in Vietnam. All testify to the fact that towards people of color, the racist power structure of America has but one policy. Repression, genocide, terror, and the big stick. Black people have begged, prayed, petitioned, demonstrated, and everything else to get the racist power structure of America to right the wrongs which have historically been perpetrated against black people. All of these efforts have been answered with more repression, deceit, hypocrisy, and hypocrisy. As the aggression of the racist American government escalates in Vietnam, 
the police agencies of America escalate the repression of black people throughout the ghettos of America. Vicious police dogs, cattle prods, and increased patrols have become familiar sights in black communities. City Hall turns a deaf ear to the pleas of black people for relief from this increasing terror. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense believes that the time has come for black people to arm themselves against this terror before it is too late. The pending Mulford Act brings the hour of doom one step nearer. A people who have suffered so much for so long at the hands of a racist society must draw the line somewhere. We believe that black, pe that black communities of America must rise up as one to halt the progression of a trend that leads inevitably to their total destruction. The shit comes down, free Huey. I got out of jail on December 8th, 1967. I came out with the feeling and desire to get brother Huey T. Newton out of jail and to keep them from sending him to the gas chamber because this was the party, and the party was my life. It was like a musician learning how to play a horn and blowing some jazz and really being with it in a way that it's your life, it's part of you. This is the way I always felt about the party. I don't generally go into things about the party from the way I might subjectively feel about them. I try to project them objectively, but I also came out of jail with a feeling that I had a wife and I had a little baby. My wife wanted me to go to work. I have nine trades, musician, comedian, community organizer, carpenter, builder, draftsman, journeyman sheet metal mechanic, general machine shop work, and non-destructive testing of machine and aircraft parts. I have a number of trades like that, but going to work wouldn't give me enough time, I felt, to work to free Huey. Before Huey had gotten shot, I was contemplating that half my time would be taking care of my family and the rest of my time would be used to work diligently in the party. I felt that we would have to have some kind of financial support that would help back up the party. I knew I was a good draftsman, so before Huey got shot, I made up my mind to do the kind of work that I'd need to do to support my family at home. I would try to get private drafting jobs that I could do at night. If I could do private drafting at home, I could make money to take care of my family, and the rest of the time, if I could be flexible and be my own boss, I could do work for the party at any time, and in any way it called upon me to do so. I was only into having a family for two years at that time, but I really related to my family. This was my first experience at being married and having a family and having this responsibility. I never really was afraid of the responsibility, but at the same time, I knew that life and living were not really secure with all the racism and exploitation that black people were subjected to. After I'd been out of jail a couple of days, I was riding down Grove Street with Eldridge, David Milliard, Artie, and a couple other people. I told Eldridge that we had to do something for Huey, but said that I also felt that I had to go to work, get a half-assed job, and possibly do some drafting at home to make some money on the side and put some specific scheme together to bust out Huey. Eldridge ran it down that our real work was organizing people. Man, don't worry about doing any work, Eldridge said. We've got a lot of work to do. This isn't like leaving your family. We'll take care of that altogether. But let's organize the people to free Huey. 
You're right, man, I said. I don't have time for a job. Before I came out of jail, I had actually known, deep down inside of me, that we didn't have any more time to be hung up on Dive Dodge with all this stuff happening to us and the pigs trying to railroad Brother Hughes. So we went into motion, using every means we had, taking every speaking engagement we could, and rallied the community. The party moved rapidly to the other campuses and held rallies and forums. We had funds and donations coming in. A lot of brothers were flocking to the party. There were a lot of brothers, a lot of party members who worked doing leafleting, announcing rallies, raising money, stuff like that. Brothers and sisters would come back and report how they went out to collect funds on the streets of Fillmore District. They would have buckets and cans to collect donations and funds. Some of the pimps would throw a 5 or $10 bill in. Some would drop 2 or $3 in. The pimps would say, is this for Huey Newton? Yeah, brother, the brothers and sisters would say. You know you're making money. You've got to come on and cough up some of them coins so Brother Huey can have some righteous legal defense. The brothers threw the money in. I think Huey knew three main pimps very well. You know, there's really no, there's no really successful pimp, but there were about ten of them who you could call successful in the Bay Area at the time. And I think Huey knew most of them. He knew most of the cats in and around the black community. So... Eldridge, David, and I were all working and figuring out different things that were necessary to be done. A couple of days later, there was a court appearance for Huey. We went there, and I did a couple of press interviews about how we were trying to mobilize people for the defense of Huey. And that's how we launched our campaign to free our minister of defense. Hell yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I want to point out how important of a moment this is. So like we've obviously seen many times already how important Huey was to the members of the Black Panther Party and well, I guess really to the black community as a whole. And, um, you know, like almost all of the historical pictures of Panthers speaking and stuff, all of this was in the name of freeing Huey Newton. Well, not all of it, but a significant portion of it. And, um, Part of the reason that I wanted to play something that was Kathleen Cleaver today is because while Huey and Bobby were locked up, she was pretty much calling the shots. She was um, badass. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, honestly, given my limited knowledge, of course, of the, the core circle of people in the Black Panther Party, I can't really think of anybody else to, you know, basically fill both of those roles while they're in jail. Right. Um, right, right. Few people had the balls to do it, and Kathleen Cleaver did. <laughs> right. <laughs> Obviously, we're not talking about literal testicles there. I just want to make that clear. Right. Just some lady balls. They could be on your chest, your ovaries, whichever ones you want to refer to. Right. <laughs> but. Anyway, so the next chapter is called A White Lawyer for a Black Revolutionary. Shortly after I got out of jail, I went over to San Francisco to check out Charles R. Gary, the lawyer the Central Committee had tentatively chosen to defend Huey. I had never met Gary before, and I guess to be honest about it, I had a little 
tingling bit of racism still hanging on to me. It wasn't that I hated white people, but I had to find out if I could trust this white lawyer to fight for Huey's freedom. Everyone had said that he was very good and he was uh, recommended to us by Beverly Axbod. Uh, we had been considering a number of lawyers, Donald Warden, Clinton White, and a couple of others. White and Warden were both black cats, but Warden had too many guys who went to jail, some of whom we thought were on death row. The way Warden operated wasn't cool, we thought, because he would tell you one thing out of the side of his mouth and then go and do another thing behind the scenes with the police department and the people downtown. Clinton White had a reputation for being a good lawyer and a good fighter, but I was fearful they would try to manipulate him, sorry, and Huey and the party would become political football. I really don't know if he decided not to take the case or if the party decided not to hire him because when I got out of jail, Gary had already been tentatively chosen. So I went over to meet Gary. He told me about the kind of law firm he was running and why these political cases related to him. I popped up right away and asked, how much money is it going to cost? And he said, let's not worry about that. Let's worry about the fact that we want to free Huey. He seemed to be a very honest person from everything I could detect about him. Well, let's see how this works out in practice, I said to myself. I generally hold back on my judgment of people until I see how they work out in practice. A couple of days later, another lawyer was being considered. We went up to see him, and right away we decided that we didn't like him because he wanted ten dollars to $12,000 in advance off the cuff. We judged that Gary's firm was a better firm and that Gary himself was a better lawyer. We looked at the man's record, the number of people he had kept off death row, the number of murder cases that he had won, and those in which he had actually proven people innocent. Uh, from all of this, and because of our concern for our brother Huey, we felt it was Gary who, who was needed. Three or four days after we made our final decision, I went to a meeting of the defense committee for Huey P. Newton, and there were less than 10 people there. Uh, I had read in the papers that there were hundreds of people on the committee. The problem was a bit of black racism was, which was hanging on, which was very bad. The people who were originally on Huey's defense committee were all black people naturally, but it turned out that they were mad because Huey's family and the Black Panther Party had decided that Charles Gary was the best legal technician available. Our argument was that we couldn't judge the man by the color of his skin. We would not choose a lawyer just because he was black. We would choose him on the basis of his ability. We said that if you had cancer or another bad disease, you, wouldn't, you would want the best medical technician that you could find. This was our argument, and they didn't understand it. That's really disappointing. We tried to show them that you could not judge Gary by the color of his skin. We tried to show them that Gary had no reason or desire to be a tool or a puppet of the power structure. We had to remind them that Gary had been viciously attacked by cops in the past when he fought for the labor unions in San Francisco. And there's that class consciousness, uh, you know, coming in uh, right off the rip. They're like, oh, he fought for labor unions? All right. You know. Man of the people. Right. Um, and that a lot of corrupt people in the local power structure um, didn't like him. This, this man had integrity, we said, and his record and everything else we knew about him were all in Huey's favor. But they still wanted to hinge it on a little old thing like he's not black. Someone even had the nerve to say that we should hire John George, a man who had never handled that kind of case, 
Those two kinds of politics developed in the black community, one on the basis of a racist line, another on the basis of our more progressive line. Later, we didn't get along with John George at all because he opportunistically, he sided with the hundred or so people who only wanted a black lawyer and were trying to form a Huey P. Newton defense committee, but who didn't really have any power in the community. When it turned out there wasn't gonna be any black lawyer, most of them stopped worrying about saving Huey's life, but some still worked to free Huey. So the Black Panther Party hired Gary, and when I went to this first meeting of the defense committee, there was only David Hilliard, Eldridge, myself, Huey's brother, Melvin Newton, Sid Walton, and three or four other people who actually showed up. There were only about eight or nine people actually functioning on Huey's defense committee right after we hired Charles Gary. Eldridge and I were very pissed off at some of the people who had their little racist hangups. So many of them, about 60 or 70, used to crowd into meetings before I got out of jail, Eldridge told me. They used to stand near the door trying to get out what they had to say, just running off at the mouth. They weren't really interested in doing any work. When we hired Gary, uh, they all dropped away like a bunch of little scared rabbits and racists. I didn't like that at all. Some of those people had been to college and had talked about all the oppressive conditions black people were living under. The way I looked at it, their actions were tantamount to selling out the black community. Some of the local black lawyers and black cultural nationalists tried to attack Gary publicly. You guys have got to get a black lawyer, they told us. We just wanted the best one we could get. Those black lawyers had some kind of a meeting in Berkeley and tried to condemn Gary. That kind of stuff even hit the newspapers. We realized that half of those lawyers were just thinking about money. They were thinking that we were gonna raise a lot of funds for Huey's defense and uh, they wanted to get their hands on those funds and stick them in their own pockets. When we hired Gary, we didn't have any money. Gary's firm didn't get any money from us for a long time and went into the old odd uh, Huey's case. Most of those black lawyers who condemned Gary never would have stuck with us when we were without funds. They would have gotten rid of us, but they really had to get up off Gary's back after he got uh, Eldridge out of Vacaville in June and later on when his legal and political work together with our community efforts kept Huey out of the gas chamber. Remember that he was charged with killing a cop in the 60s as a black man. So, I mean, honestly, the fact that he kept Huey out of the gas chamber and that he was out of prison a couple of years later, I think, speaks volumes to uh, the fact that they made the right choice. Right. They definitely picked the right attorney. And I, I'd like to just point out, like, part of what their goal and what they were doing with this work that was very important was fighting racism itself and going, hey, don't judge me by the color of my skin, the level of pigment that I have. Judge me by my character. Judge me by my skills, what I actually bring to the table as a person. And to have to turn around and set that precedence for some of the people in their own community, it's another beautiful example of actions are even louder than those words. It's like, no, we're, we're not going to allow you to treat somebody in the very ways that we are saying don't treat us. That's right. That. And it's these little things that are showing that the Black Panther Party was not the black supremacist organization that we were taught they were. And right. I, I mean, that they I, really cared about liberation. I, I hate to interrupt you here, 
but I think the next three sentences definitely highlight the fact that the Black Panther Party was not, in fact, the black racist organization that we were raised to believe that it was. Go ahead and read it. Black racism is a fault of a few within the black community. Black racism is very selfish. It is definitely not progressive or a productive thing. It's the last three sentences in this section of this chapter. So uh, this, this next uh, section or chapter or whatever is called coalitions. And I think, I think this is going to be fucking important too. Um, I, I've only, I only have very limited knowledge on what kind of coalitions that the Black Panther Party built, but they all happened as part of the Free Huey Newton movement. So, yeah. Um, three weeks after I got out of jail, we formed a coalition with the Peace and Freedom Party. They're still in existence, by the way, um, in California anyway. Eldridge called me and told me to come over and meet some people who wanted to give us money to help Huey out. When I got there, he told me an organization, the Peace and Freedom Party, was trying to get on the ballot and they wanted to know if they could come into the black community and register people into their party. We thought about it and talked about what Huey had said. Huey thought that we should not become an official party on the ballot at that time because he knew political repression was going to come down. The Black Panther Party wasn't massive at that time and hadn't yet spread across the country. Remembering what had happened to the American Communist Party, he was afraid to, or that the government would take every person who was registered or attempted to register as an official Black Panther Party member and try to trump up charges out them. So I'm going to pause right there um, because I don't really know the context here. What happened to the American Communist Party? I don't know, but we need to make note of that to look into for another history segment. Yes, we do. But I want to, I want to find out. I, I just want to find out real quick for the um, context. Yeah. Um, the history of the Communist Party USA is ideologically complex and tied to communism. You don't fucking say the Communist Party is tied to communism and Marxism and labor movements. No fucking shit. Tyler, that's <laughs> point. <laughs> right. Uh, many party members were forced to work covertly due to the high level of political repression in the United States against communists. So the Red Scare. That makes sense. Um, presumably well, due to the Red Scare, where the U.S. government think they registered to that party. That's just yeah, well, that's Americans that's crazy. Um, okay, so membership began to decline in the late '40s and early '50s, presumably due to the Red Scare, uh, where the U.S. government publicly tried and convicted communists and Communist Party members on the grounds of the Smith Act. CPUSA faced challenges when the USSR fell as they lost their main source of funding. The Communist Party USA is still alive today, but its membership and activity have shifted to a more online medium despite staying active through various challenges, including a significant fracturing in the 1990s. They have never managed to reach their previous heights. 
Okay, so basically, Red Scare propaganda and, uh, you know, COINTEL Pro, I'm sure. Okay, so back to the book. I'm sorry. I just wanted the context there. Um, at the same time, we wanted to spread out a lot more and get a massive group of white people to work in their communities because Huey always held the position that white people should work to end racism in their own community. I'm going to interject again <laughs> to say that a lot of times this needs to happen in your own damn house. Right. You know, like, make family dinners uncomfortable if that's what it takes. Let grandma know that fucking being racist isn't okay, even if it's veiled, even if she claims she has a black friend. It doesn't matter. Yep. Racism is racism, and it's on us to stop it. We're not saying that it's okay to punch grandma. <laughs> but we are saying that if she is German by way of Argentina, I mean... <laughs> Always punch Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you might might need to punch grandma if she's a Nazi. But I, I guess the point that I was trying to make is that that is something that is finally actually happening. White people are finally actually, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, white people are actually finally addressing racism in their own fucking families. I'm not saying that nobody had before. In fact, a lot of families had before, but a lot of families that didn't before did. Are now. Right. And um, I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, Natalie we said, I will. We, Go ahead. We need, to educate, we need to educate the people in our lives. We need to make them feel very fucking uncomfortable when they utter racist shit and let them know that's not fucking acceptable. Don't give a shit who or where you learned the shit from. Fuck that shit. Do better. Use your fucking brain. Would you like somebody to judge you based on your skin color? Or would you rather they judge you by your character? Do unto I, others? I'm going to be very honest with you right now. The reason that I am hesitate hesitant on showing my face on screen right now is because I'm white and bald and covered in tattoos depicting Norse mythology. It's not a good look. Okay, so stop shaving your head. Why should I have to why should I not have to or why should I have to stop shaving my head? That's a bad joke. But it's not about you, though, because you might find it annoying that some people, um, you know, are like, oh, well, those are tattoos like what racists have, you know, but you're not the one being oppressed there either. You just find it annoying. You don't want people to have the wrong impression, but actions speak louder than words again. And I don't think anybody would jump through that of assuming that you're a racist just because you have you know, the Valkyries tattooed on your hand. If somebody asks you about your tattoos, instead of jumping through that, maybe just tell them the story of the Valkyries. Like, this is something I find beautiful in my ancestors. I, I, I feel like you're, you're misunderstanding a little bit, although I do understand what you're saying, and that is, in fact, what I do. Um, the reason that I assume that people are going to think that I'm some sort of Nazi when I'm definitely not 
is because it's happened before. Uh, it's happened a lot. When when me and Rob were living down in Flint, our neighbors thought I was a skinhead for a while until I like popped my head up over the fence and was like, nah, it's just hot with hair, man. I mean, that's actually fairly accurate. <laughs> right, especially in this humidity. Hell, I've thought about shaving my head. Not fully, but like mohawking it because it's so fucking hot. Anyway. Anyway. Sorry to derail this with discussions about me being bald. I I just felt like I actually had something to say. Natalie Natalie said, Hey, but your heart is in the right place. You don't need to conform, uh, and it may open up doors to speak to the other side. Not necessarily me well, I mean actually there is like Remember the black guy that like fucking joined the KKK and then convinced KKK members that they were wrong and they left the KKK and like gave him their hoods and shit? I do know who you're talking about, actually. Um, he didn't join the FBI, but he did. I said the KKK, not yeah, the or, FBI. Yeah, KKK. He didn't. He didn't join up, but he definitely did. Did sit down with the uh, the Grand Dragon or Super Cyclops or whatever fucking fairy tale bullshit they're calling themselves these days and this gentleman over the course of like five meetings with this other with, with this head of the clan got this head of the clan to realize that he had never met a, ba- a black person in his life and all of his hatred was just bullshit that somebody else had fed him I mean, you're not wrong on that, but there's a lot more to that story. He was showing up to like local. Yeah, he was. He was definitely and fucking up. in hood for like 15 years. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's also very strange that like he he had a meeting. He had a speaking thing recently before COVID, obviously, and the uh, <laughs> the the college that he was speaking at somebody was protesting outside of it saying that he was a nazi wow oh no yeah oh, he went undercover to... <laughs> oh my god they misunderstood that yeah yeah All the way around. yeah like in the worst way holy shit right. dude intentionally misinterpreting things yeah, it was it was it was bad. But, <laughs> it was... I mean, see, and here's my thing. Think about the libertarian right. Like with most and I'm not saying all, but with most of them, I feel like their hearts in the right place. They just don't want the government in their lives. Right. Which on its surface, which is as deep as most of them ever dig into it. That sounds great. Until yep. you realize that nobody's regulating your fucking drugs and your water's polluted, and you can't breathe the air. But on its surface, it'll sound great. I fucking know. I was a libertarian for a long time until I realized there was nothing below the surface. And I think that a lot of these people can be reached. The question is how. James, to answer your uh, question in the comments, his name was Clayton Bigsby. It is a classic, classic Chappelle Show reference. I appreciate the fuck out of it. I really do. If this were the early 2000s, instead of being on Facebook, Rob and I would be around a campfire shouting Chappelle Show references at each other. Not explicitly. Uh, yeah, yeah not explicit. Show. 
sometimes but, there would be other things mixed in there like Star oh, yeah. Trek and, and Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking whatever like interviews we saw with our favorite favorite musicians. Yeah, Wild yep. is great at fucking ridiculous interviews. Yep, yep. And uh the old drummer for Lamb of God has a party city beard. Yeah. <coughs> Somebody's mad in the chat. I saw a mad face oh, go what? across the. I saw a mad face go across the screen. Probably because we're getting off topic. Probably, <laughs> probably. Okay, let's get back. <laughs> let's get back to top. <laughs> let's get back to page one twenty. Is it your is it your turn now, Dom? Or do you want me to keep going? I don't really care. Ah, you got it. All right, you got this. Eldridge told me that the. Peace and Freedom Party would give us money and also give us $3,000 for Huey's Defense Fund. They not only wanted to register people for the Peace and Freedom Party in the white community, but they also wanted to do it in the black community and saw us, the Black Panther Party, as representatives of the black community. I thought that was correct and right in line with white mother country radicals, an article written by Eldridge. I decided that we should form the coalition. Eldridge agreed that we should form a coalition for a specific purpose, which was an idea that Huey had talked about. Later, we went to jail and asked Huey about it, and he agreed. Um, we had a number of rallies in the black community in Oakland. Sorry, I had to turn the tunes back on. <laughs> anyway, um, we had a number of rallies in the black community in Hunter's Point, the Fillmore, and West Oakland with the Peace and Freedom Party supplying sound and technical equipment, which the Black Panther Party did not at that time have at all. With the $3,000, we were, we were able to pay a fair retainer to Charles R. Gary for Huey's defense. In the white community, as well as the black, we initiated a broad campaign for increased concern about the problems of the black community centered around our leader and Minister of Defense, Brother Huey P. Newton. There were a few black members of the Peace and Freedom Party, and they always said that uh, they represented the black community in the Peace and Freedom Party. We would look at them and say, what do you mean? Huey P. Newton represents the black community. <laughs> It got to be a hassle and some, uh, they would sometimes ask us what we thought we should do. We would say that they should join the Black Panther Party. We looked upon the Peace and Freedom Party as a predominantly white organization for the white community. At the same time, we saw that it was valuable to form a coalition for the specific purpose of encouraging black people to register in the Peace and Freedom Party instead of Republican or Democratic parties who were oppressing us. With this understanding, we formed the coalition and later announced that we, we would run Brother Huey P. Newton for Congress from the 7th Congressional District and myself for the assembly from the 17th Assembly District, districts that were half white and half black. There were attempts by the power structure to limit the party's activity with this coalition. We had a lot of clashes with a lot of different groups of people, but there were thousands of black people coming into the Black Panther Party because of what was happening. The coalition was a working coalition, not just a verbal one. There was some very good work done in the community. When the university students were being viciously attacked by Berkeley police, the students understood that the people in the black community were being attacked, murdered, and brutalized all the time. 
the people, uh, the Peace and Freedom Party came to the realization that we had to do something about the police on a political level. The Black Panther Party agreed and they asked us what we thought should be done. And um, I'm going to interject right here to say that I now know with absolute certainty where Howie Hawkins got the idea of community control of the police and probably the pronunciation of police. Anyway, uh, Eldridge talked to Bob Avakian, Rick Highland, and quite a number of others about the concept of community control of the police. We began to work jointly on this uh, with members of the Peace and Freedom Party because it would not only be con community of control of the police in the black community, but it would also be community control of the police in the white community. It was at this time that I began to think that some members of the Peace and Freedom Party weren't really concerned with Brother Huey P. Newton as a political prisoner who needed to be free. Many people worked on our campaign and showed concern, but some of them just weren't interested. Some of the leaders looked at, looked at it as a political lever or something to use, but others were earnest and really wanted to free Huey. It became apparent that many Peace and Freedom Party members would have would have to become more radical and more revolutionary. Many people did not understand that the very police who attempted to kill Huey were controlled by the Democratic and Republican parties. So they weren't very concerned with community control of the police. They didn't understand that Huey's situation was inseparable from the needs of the community. We also saw that they didn't have a real interest in the community control of the police. We weren't in good communication about it, so we just naturally worked on our own with the petition. This didn't make us against coalitions. It mostly placed us against people who allow themselves to stagnate, who think that they don't have an issue when there's a lot of hard work to be done. There were some 25,000 votes cast for Huey P. Newton for Congress in the 7th con Congressional District. For the people who thought the, who thought like the old politicians, <clears throat> if a candidate lost, it was over. For some of the leaders, some, <coughs> some of the leaders felt that running Huey was a losing tactic, but that wasn't the case. They misunderstood how much Huey was inter interlocked with every black. We'd run Huey again. We'd run Huey again because ours is a revolutionary struggle. Having some internet issues right now. I don't know if I cut out there. Yeah, a little bit. Where for a second, but it it caught back up. It just sounded funky for a minute okay yeah fast forwarded your voice so i was like okay well i'll just read the last sentence over again we'd run huey again because ours is a revolutionary struggle they acted like social democrats and were not able to ad advance to a higher level and continue working the coalition began to split up 
I still believe that if the Peace and Freedom Party would really rally its people together, then membership alone could place the community control of the police issue on the ballot. But they wouldn't push for it. We will continue to have working alliance... Fucking computer. Sorry, guys. One second. Every time I move my mouse, shit pops up to where I can't read it. First world problems. We will continue to have working alliances with other groups like Los Cite del Raza, a group supporting the seventh Latino brothers who are the seven Latino brothers who are accused of killing a cop in San Francisco. Alliances with groups like Los Cite. Siete. Los Siete. I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's been a long time since I spoke Spanish. I mean, bro, I live in Arizona, so, like, a significant number of our signs are in Spanglish. Yeah, yeah, and I understand that. If I was any farther north, a lot of our signs would start to become French, which I think is weird. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, the French settled Michigan. Well, not... Well, not settled it, but they they, they took it over. It. They they showed up and said, "Hey, this is ours now." And in certain cases, I'm pretty convinced that like the local Chippewa were like, "You want to live in Taos? The place is a fucking swamp." All right. Oh yeah, dude. I mean, <laughs> they didn't. I don't think they cared too much about Detroit, really. Oh no, no. They well, I mean, at a certain point, they did because they totally. They're definitely. At a certain point, wars. yes. Because, there are definitely like, wars that are were fought in Michigan over colonization. This is true. This is true. Uh, but I mean, at the time that, that Detroit was occupied. Yeah. Alliances with groups like Los Siete have worked out a lot better than coalitions. Oh, shit, that was not the end of the sentence. (laughs) Have worked out a lot better than coalitions with white liberals because the brown American people are suffering from the same things black American people are. The Young Lords, a Puerto Rican gang that turned political, works in alliance with the Black Panther Party in Chicago and New York. They're suffering the same oppressive conditions that black people are subject to. There's also the Young Patriots, who are a vanguard in the poor white communities. We can relate well with them because they are in opposition to the power structure's oppression. Alliances between poor, oppressed peoples work out readily. It is the poor, oppressed people who have to dictate their political desires and needs and explain what should be done and what should not be done. The organizations of the lumpen proletariat are the ones we can relate to. We have a problem with black students sometimes because they tend to have a detached understandings of the realities in the black community. So I just want to interject here that they talk about organizing the lumpen proletariat. Uh, right, these, these street gangs, that's who they're referring to, the criminal underclass. Um, they were completely looked over in Russia. They were completely looked over in China. They were completely looked over in the attempted revolution in Germany. You know, like, everybody just thought there's nothing you can really do about the lumpen proletariat. The, the Black Panther Party saw it differently. 
They were like, hey, man, you guys are oppressed, too. Why the fuck do you think you're living a life of crime? Right. And some people's uh, perspectives, because of what they have grown up in, that is the only solution they can find to actually make enough money to not just be barely surviving on minimum wage. Right. Um, and oftentimes they ain't wrong. You can still be ethical while, <laughs> you know, maintaining your underground business. But that's very true. Uh, yeah, I mean, All I, right. I've known people ran really good fucking businesses underground, and were some of the most ethical people you would definitely want to team up with in something like this because they understand economic oppression better than most. Anywho's it. <laughs> a lot of people don't understand that when we make coalitions, we're not trying to shuck people. We have no time to be shucking and jiving. When we get three or four brothers shot up and killed, we can't say that it was bad and forget about it. Because we know the pigs are coming back tomorrow. They'll try to attack us again. We know that because of our historical experience as black people. We're not against intelligence. The party is very intelligent. And we read the same materials that college students have read. But it's different when cats like Huey P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver write and talk because it's coming out of a lot of experience. It comes from their guts and their souls. So, um... I kind of want to pull up another video real quick because it's talking about how it's different when Huey P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver write and talk. And it really is, dude. Like, I mean, I know that he's trying not to stroke himself off in here, but like Bobby Seale is in that group too. And like hearing this story in his own words is so much different than hearing it out of a history book. Well, I mean, obviously the narrative is different first and foremost, but... I mean, you can tell that it comes out of experience. And I kind of, I'm actually going to pull up um, a Huey P. Newton speech. Hell yeah. Um, while you're doing that, am I, how's the audio sound? Am, am I like eating the mic too much or anything? I mean, it sounds fine. Okay, cool. Just making sure, I know somebody said earlier I sounded loud, and I think it might have just been because of the contrast between my voice and Trisha's voice. Right, because my mic on this one is weak. Yeah. <clears throat> is your other one not um, charged yet, or? The light's still red on it. Damn. That one has a battery charge of like 15 hours. So it takes a while to goof it up. It just didn't warn me in time that it needs to charge again. Fair enough. I would like to uh, make a statement. Um, uh, James, to answer your question. Concerning guns okay. in the light of. What do you have? The assassination of uh, I don't know if Kennedy. you pause that for me. Don't pause that for me. Uh, first of all, 
I did, and then you started talking as soon as I unpaused it. <laughs> say whatever you were gonna say. Oh, I I was literally in the process of just telling you I can answer James's question in the comments, like in the comments. Sorry. I would like to uh, make a statement uh, concerning guns in the light of the assassination of uh, Kennedy. Uh, first of all, our position on guns and violence in general, on war in general, is one of uh, being against war and being against violence. And uh, this is not a change position. Uh, if it seems uh, in contradiction to some of my other, uh, earlier statements, simply because uh, people have not understood uh, what I was saying in the first place. That um, I say that violence, uh, war, and guns are a thing that the Black Panther Party uh, would like to see gotten rid of. That we absolutely. Um, are against uh, people uh, uh, killing each other and committing violence on each other. But also, we recognize that we're, we don't uh, advocate that the oppressed people, that the victims, uh, leave themselves uh, uh, subject to the aggressions of the criminal. And these are the people who are forcing uh, uh, us to a state of subjugation and uh, 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 keeping us in a state of slavery. And this is the people all over the world. Uh, for instance, uh, I'm sure the Vietnamese people uh, would like uh, very much uh, for uh, this government uh, to give up its guns. Because that would mean that the uh, military would disarm itself and stop killing little Vietnamese children and women and destroying them. Uh, I think I stated earlier uh, that our, the motto of the Panther is that uh, we're advocates of the abolition of war. We do not want war, but war can only be abolished through war. And in order to get rid of the gun, we find it necessary to take up the gun. So the first thing uh, to do is not to disarm the victim, but uh, disarm the aggressor disarm the person who's first causing the violent incidents. Uh, the United States have been uh, visiting uh, uh, violence upon the world or causing violence upon the world uh, for years upon weak, oppressed people. And that we are against this and uh, we would like uh, for this to be changed and we are going to uh, change it by any means necessary. So therefore, that uh, in the final analysis, that we would like for total disarmament to exist, but first we would have to disarm the cause of the disturbance. And the cause of the disturbance is U.S. imperialism and the violence that, uh, that um, is, um, the violence uh, that is in this country is only a reflection of the violent nature of the country in the first place. Uh, you don't expect to uh, go to someone else's home and uh, disturb things and uh, act violently and expect for your home to stay in a state of peace and tranquility. Uh, the first thing you have to do is stop your actions against other people and then violence will stop. 
but I think this country is so hung up on violence and ruled by force, the club and the gun, until it'll be very difficult for them to even pass uh, legislation uh, to get rid of guns. And if they do pass legislation to get rid of guns, that the Black Panther Party is going to keep an eye on who maintains his guns. Uh, if they uh, want to disarm people, I would say first start disarming uh, the vicious uh, uh, police force that uh, occupy our communities throughout the country, where we die, uh, we're brutalized each day, and we're shot down in the street. Our little kids are shot down in the street by criminals with guns uh, under the skies, going on the facade of peace officers. So in the final analysis that uh, we stand for total uh, disarmament, and this is not to exclude anyone. If you're going to disarm, then disarm the police, start with the police, and end up with the uh, military. And uh, then that we would uh, advocate that all other countries disarm itself and violence will stop. Uh, because then the people will have more of a chance of a redress of grievance because the racist and the imperialist will not be protected by his guns. That is the only thing that protects him is guns. So the violence that, uh, that America inflicts throughout the world is now coming home to roost, as uh, Malcolm uh, uh, said before his death. That, uh, that when uh, Kennedy's brother was killed, he made the... Uh, 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 statement that the chickens have come home to roost and uh, I think that uh, this is an appropriate statement at this time that uh, the chickens have come home to roost <clears throat> okay my apologies for talking to you the beginning of that the video did not start playing on my end so I thought we were just sitting here with that air ah uh. yeah I need to throw this tablet in the trash. Um, so yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to... I thought that was an important piece anyway, because honestly, Huey's opinion on guns there is pretty much mine too. Sure, sure, we should disarm the entire world, starting with the police starting with governments in general only then can we even have the discussion about true disarmament in the meantime if the fascists are going to have guns well and frankly we need to have them too Anyway, uh, Stokely comes to Oakland. Early in January of 1968, we decided to have a huge rally in Oakland in support of Brother Huey's freedom. We knew that a rally for Huey would fill the Oakland Auditorium, and we went about securing it. The auditor uh, auditorium is owned by the city of Oakland, and they couldn't rent it out to us because they didn't want black power advocates coming to Oakland to cause riots. We went back down there with a lawyer and he told the auditorium manager that he should rent the place for uh, to us for any date he had open. Well, I can't give it to him, he said. If you don't give it to them, our lawyer told him, we'll get a court injunction on you for violating the right of the people to be able to assemble in the auditorium. Now, there must be some date open, so you better just cough up a date. 
he decided to cough up a date so they arbitrarily said well the only date we have open is next month sometime february 17th and eldridge quickly said we'll take that date any date when we came out of the auditorium eldridge ran back across the street to the county jail where huey was being held and told them we were going to have a big rally for him for him and his freedom and we were going to pack the oakland auditorium the rally is going to be on february 17th eldridge said Huey looked up at him and said, hey, that's my birthday. Eldridge had no idea Huey's birthday was in February. So right up there in the county jail is where Eldridge got the beautiful political idea that it would be a birthday rally for Huey, a birthday rally for the freedom of our Minister of Defense. Um, I wasn't allowed to go into the jail to visit Huey. They have some kind of jive rule that after you get out of the county jail, you can't go back in to visit someone else. Actually, that kind of rule is still in today, still in place today in a lot of places. And that's, it's stupid, right? I think it's stupid. Anyway, um, I didn't go that time with Eldridge, but a number of times after that, I disguised myself and went up and saw Brother Huey. They have a little booth up there where you're supposed to identify yourself, but sometimes, Sometimes when I came up in the elevator, there was so many visitors and supporters of Huey that the brothers just shifted me sideways away from the booth, and I went in and visited Huey. I don't think it's illegal, but they have this jive rule. If they want to try to prosecute me on it now, let them try it. Eldridge came out of the courthouse. The holding section of the Alameda County Jail is on the top floor of the Alameda County Courthouse, and it ran and ran it all down to me about how we were going to have a birthday party for Huey. We only had about a month before the rally. We went down to the Peace and Freedom Party and told them that we needed some money because we wanted to go see Stokely Carmichael in Washington, D.C. Um, Stokely had just come back from his world tour of Vietnam, Cuba, Africa, and other places. We felt that Eldridge and I should go directly to Washington, D.C. and sit down and talk to him and run it down to him because he hadn't really committed himself to coming to the rally yet, although we had told them about it. We asked the cats in the Peace and Freedom Party to finance that trip for us, and they financed it, but not before we went through a few changes. When we first asked them, they said they didn't have any money. Eldridge and I told them they were a bunch of liars. How can you tell us you don't have any money? If you don't have it, you can raise it. We need $500 in plane fare and $100 in expense money to go and see Stokely so we can secure this whole rally. So they said, well, we can get you about $200, but we can't get any more. Well, you're damn liars. You cats are talking about working with us in a coalition and you want to go into the black community and want us to be key spokesmen there for the Peace and Freedom Party. But at the same time, we are talking about Huey, about Huey's freedom. The reason we entered this coalition was to talk about Huey's freedom. That's what this rally is all about, politically educating the masses of people. The Huey P. Newton must be set free now. Are you cats going to be racist and driving around and go back on your word, or are you cats going to be able to go out and hustle that money? We don't have much time because we want to start getting some other things together, and we want to raise some more money to print our posters. Then I got mad, and I told them I didn't want to talk to them. Don't talk to me. I said, Eldridge would do this all the time. He would get mad and cuss them out and say to hell with them sometimes. Later on, I didn't do that, but at that time I was overtly concerned with Brother Huey and I didn't want to be jiving around with anybody that was going to be bullshit. 
we knew that they had enough people to uh, help us out, or enough money, sorry, to help us out. We were so concerned about Huey and the organization and black people that we felt we had to use those tactics to make those cats see that it was important. Um, Eldridge came back out the door, or back out of the office and sat in the car. Then they went back inside the office and got $500 and brought it out. And I said, no, 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 we can't make it, or we can make it with this, Eldridge said. We haven't got any expense money, I said. We can get some. If they're gonna have a coalition with us, I said, then they can raise the other $100. I'll be, they've got it, uh, I'll bet they've got it with them. So Mike Parker and some other cats raised that extra $100 in 30 minutes. That night, Eldridge and I got on this plane and split. When we got to Washington, we rented a car to get around with. We drove to this address we had for Stokely, and when we got there, it was, uh, or when we got there, we went up and knocked on the door. It was kind of early in the morning, about 8 a.m., but when we knocked on it, the guy who answered it was uptight. The FBI and the CIA had been trailing Stokely consistently, but the cat looked at us and he had to know that we weren't FBI or CIA agents. Eldridge told him we were from the Black Panther Party, and so they said, Stokely is sleeping now, come back later on. Well, wait a minute, we said, we've come to sit down and talk. Uh, the cat said, well, you have to go to somebody else's house. He wrote something on a piece of paper and said, go to this address. Now, what kind of shit is this? We thought these cats are crazy. These cats lack understanding, placing their egos before the struggle. But we decided to go to the other address. When we got there, uh, those cats were a little bit more hospitable. About two hours later, we went back to talk to Stokely. We talked a little while about different things, about going around the world, asking about Cuba and things like that. We went on for a while. We tried to relax, had some coffee, and then somebody brought in half a gallon of wine and we righteously relaxed. <laughs> I mean, half a gallon of wine will do that to you. Anyway, after that, we got into the car we had rented. I mean, really, really? Half a gallon of wine, after that we got into the car. I'm hoping they had a DD, but... Listen, listen, man. Let's not... Let's not judge them too harshly. We've been there. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Remember the moped, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to talk to Stokely about what we really wanted, he's coming out to Oakland for the big, uh, for the big rally. We let Stokely drive. He drives like he's crazy. We looked back and noticed that some cops were trailing us. They look like FBI agents. And I said, man, look at those cops trailing us. Don't worry about it. They trail me like that all the time. But they're not even hiding themselves. Well, they know that I know that they're following me and they don't care if I know or don't know that they're gonna follow me. You mean they're right there on your bumper all the time and if you speed up, they speed up and if you slow down, they slow down and if you turn a corner, they turn the same damn corner. That's the way they do it. Meanwhile, he's driving real crazy. I told Stokely that we didn't allow cops to be just following us around like that. Oh, just leave him alone. Then he took off and just started driving wildly, speeding down the streets and everything. He actually lost the cats and left them out of sight. He'd drive all the way up a street and then stop. About four minutes later, the same cops had come right back after us in the same car. Then Stokely would turn around and drive back down the street 
As he drove back down the street, the cops had seen him coming that way. They would turn into a driveway and back out and have their car sitting in the same direction the Stokely was going. We would pass them and they would get right back on our tail again. They were never more than 30 feet away from him. They followed Stokely around wherever he went 24 hours a day. Another time, uh, Stokely cut out and completely lost them. We waited 10 minutes and they drove right up behind us. They've got a beeper on the car, Stokely said. What do you mean a beeper? They've got a beeper on this car already. That's what I was trying to find out. You all just got this car and they checked you out when you came to see me. While you were upstairs, they put a beeper on the car, some type, kind of radar type beeper that can find this car wherever it is. Uh, they've already put it on and can find you guys wherever you are. That's how they keep up with my car. We cut out again and lost them. We lost them for a number of blocks, but they almost caught up with us. Then Stokely went into a park and wound his way up a road. It's not a big hill, but it's got a good slope to it. You go up the road and it makes a complete circle and comes back into itself. Stokely sped up this road and made a complete circle. Then the road came right back into itself. So here Stokely was barreling down this very narrow road, coming right back down on the cops. They saw him coming so fast and they just swerved off the road and let Stokely go by. Stokely cut out while they were hustling to turn around and get their car off the dirt and back onto the road so they could continue following him. Stokely drove to another part of the park, almost a mile away. We just sat there in the parking lot and watched them from a distance wind their way towards us. We turned the radio on to try to drown out any bugging of the car that might have taken place. We talked about the fact that we wanted Stokely to come out to Oakland and speak and we would probably have five to six thousand people there. Stokely agreed to speak and we wound up uh, our meeting with him. Eldridge and I went down to the SNCC office later that night. We talked to a lot of different organizations. They heard about our coalition with the Peace and Freedom Party. Why do you trust white people? Some SNCC members and cats from black, national, black nationalist organizations wanted to know. Uh, what is the SNCC? SNCC. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I should have known that. Anyway. Uh, oops. What the fuck? What? What was that sound? Uh, that was something hitting my chair. And it oh, rang, dear God. And it rang like a bell. It did ring like a bell. I was concerned. We don't trust white people in the sense that you're talking about, we said. We judge everybody by what they do. Actions speak louder than words is obviously the theme for today. Um, they asked us why we didn't get a black lawyer for Huey. We told them it wasn't necessarily true that if Huey had a black lawyer, he would automatically be well defended and not become a political football to kick around. We told them that we readily went forth to secure legal defense for Huey and that the coalition with the Peace and Freedom Party was not something based on just trusting white people just because they were white. They should at least respect the fact that at one time there was a John Brown and that the John Browns had done a lot more than some black college intellectuals ever had. We respected John Brown for that, we said, but we live in the spirit of Nat Turner, Patrice Lumumba, and Malcolm X. And Malcolm denounced every kind of racism in his last days, which is important actually to point out because a lot of people refer to Malcolm X's speeches 
like while he was part of the nation of Islam, like his his views changed quite a bit before leading up to his murder after his split with the nation of Islam. And I don't think that's talked about a whole lot. I mean, he did view white liberals as dangerous because, you know, if they do nothing, they're automatically siding with the oppressor. But that being said, he really steered away from the racist narrative in the last, you know, year or so of his life. Um, they were able to understand this. They had a basic psychological block because, as Fanon put it, their intellectual possessions wore still in pawn to the man system. A lot of cats down there were college students. They couldn't see it when uh, we told them that a lot of their ideas were black racist and we couldn't operate in a black racist thing. They couldn't see it because they were trying to say that there was no such thing as black racism. And we were trying to show them that there very easily could be such a thing as black racism. I want to interject here to say that I think that they're conflating racism and prejudice is the same thing. I understand their point and I agree with their point, but I would, I don't think it's black racism. I think it's prejudice because racism is systemic. Racism is built into the system. Right. For the benefit of white people. Right. So there is a, a distinction there between a person's own feelings towards another versus this whole fucking system. Right. Um, black racism is not overt in most people in the black community, but it's the way a lot of those cats in the colleges think. They think about their own selves being free and they think with the same racism that a lot of white people project onto them. And you're not going to end racism by perpetuating more racism. Fucking amen to that. Right. We also told them that ours was a working coalition to get white people to work in the white community against racism to destroy it and ultimately get rid of it there. Our aim, we said, was to educate the masses of people to understand that they have to get rid of the system that exploits us, get rid of the oppression, and create some real government. Well, all in all, the cats there, the SNCC people and the others, didn't accept what we were saying. There was also a rally planned in LA on the day following ours. Ron Karenga of the US organization had sent two of his bald-headed black racists to Washington because he had found out in some kind of way that we were going to see Stokely. He flew them in that evening. Those cats were going to try to get uh, Stokely to see to it that Ron Karenja would get to speak at our rally. Stokely was going to be on a forum with them in Los Angeles the next day. We didn't object to it. We didn't even want to argue about it. We said we would check it out when we got back to Oakland. The next day, when we talked to Stokely again and secured everything, we agreed up on when he would be out, when he would receive traveling expenses and who was coming with him. We were aware that Stokely and James Foreman weren't getting along at all at that time. There had been a dispute of some kind because Stokely traveled out of country without the approval of the Central Committee of the SNCC. But even with Stokely at our rally, we still wanted a working alliance with the SNCC so as to better unite black organizations around the country. 
We felt that they should come forth in this working alliance to further the defense of Huey and lay a broad foundation of unified organizations across the country. These coalitions are fucking important. Um, and when, when exactly was this? We're, we're like, well, late, late 68, early 69, maybe. I, I think so. It would be early 69 because they were just talking about the birthday party, you know, February. So yeah. So that'd be, hold on. Free Huey Rally Oakland February 17th, 1968. Okay, so it's 1967 into 1968. Okay. Okay, so that makes sense because I mean, these coalitions really did build into what they were doing in, in 1969 and 1970, especially. Um, they were working on uniting the left. Same thing we're still working on doing now. Right. We proposed this against their arguments that they didn't want to work with white people. We reminded Stokely that he himself set in motion the idea of white people working in the white community when he spoke at Berkeley about a year earlier. The Black Panther Party had adopted the idea and saw it, some, or saw it as something that was in opposition to all forms of racism. Huey and I respected and used it. Now Stokely was saying, down with white people. He told us that many people around Washington, D.C. didn't want him to speak in Oakland because there was going to be white people on the platform. We told Stokely that there was going to be a Peace and Freedom Party member speaking from the platform, and we thought it was very necessary that he speak. The person from Peace and Freedom was going to set forth their understanding of what white people have to do to end racism in the white community, which is something that black people have to understand. And I mean, I, I think that there's still that divide. I, I, I don't think that black people necessarily understand how difficult it can be for a white person to confront racism in their own community, especially in, you know, like the area I grew up in, it's like 98% white. It's getting a lot easier now because it's not like the uncommon opinion, but I can only imagine what it was like in the 60s. All right, that's the, the ability to convince someone to change their mind, that's a rare thing, no matter how much you can educate them on the subject. Um, it depends on that person of whether they are willing to look at the fact that their skin color doesn't make them any fucking better than anybody else. Right. Sometimes people want to get over their own fucking egos and cling to those racist ideas, no matter how much evidence you present them. <laughs> no that's matter... that's true. That's true. And on the other side of that, I do. I think that that white people need to understand how oppressed the black community has been for how long and how not really that long ago that it was that it is that it's still happening today and a lot of them just default setting fucking view this as a problem that is the black community's problem 
to deal with. And it's like, no, this is a problem being caused by racist white people. This is a white people problem to fucking deal with. It doesn't fall on the oppressed. For it to have to be their fucking job to confront this shit alone, no. White people, you need to start calling out fellow white people who do racist shit. You need to put them on the spot. You need to maybe teach them a thing or two about fucking ethics and reality. Um, Looking at you, Tucker Carlson. Right. Right. With your fucking, I'm not apologizing for being white bullshit. Like, motherfucker, nobody asked you to. People are asking you to have some goddamn ethics. And And empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that motherfucker, he wouldn't know what the fuck it was if it slapped him in the face. Tucker Carlson sucks flaccid penis. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you knew that I was leaning <laughs> in and getting ready to say it. I definitely. We'll have t-shirts to that effect. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. I just want to know why he that. constantly looks like like a dark ages farmer that got pulled forward in time to see what a fucking combine does. <laughs> oh my god. Tucker <laughs> fucking uh, Tucker fucking Carlson. Or like or like an upper class white person finding out that their free range organic chicken was actually a living chicken at one point and not just magically appearing in the store. Right. Skinned and everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's some debate as to factory chickens nowadays and I don't know if they're even grown with skin anymore. (laughs) Have you seen some of them KFC chickens? They're hard to look at. That's not a chicken. No, that's fucking not. It, they don't got beaks, yo. They don't have beaks. They remove the feet before they're dead. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody showed me a photoshopped image of, like, a chicken with six drums. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be that surprised either. Six, six fucking legs and 18 wings. And 14 breasts. And, and 14 breasts going way farther than Total Recall did. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, oh my god. Okay. Go for Popeyes. It tastes good and there's no racism to have to rinse off of it. Or I mean, you know the CEO is actually white, right? That lady uh, in the yeah, commercials I'm- isn't the, isn't she's just uh, the face. I, I'm aware. The the, the are we talking about Popeyes? Like church chicken actually supports racist and homophobic fucking policies. So well, so does Chick Fil A on a much bigger scale than churches. Chick-fil-A, yeah. yeah. Listen, listen. Fuck between between the yeah between the chicken places, go to Popeyes. They have far superior chicken. Or if you're in Michigan, specifically in the Flint area, go to Yaya's. Yeah, definitely go to Yaya's. Oh. Shout out to Yaya's. I fucking love Yaya's. Leanne doesn't know what Yaya's is, so I'm gonna mute my mic. I'm gonna mute my mic and explain. All right, all right, Leanne. (laughs) 
just tomorrow when the sun comes out, just right. get in your truck, type in Yaya's Chicken on Google Maps and go where it takes you and get think, some fucking chicken. I'm fairly certain there's a Yaya's near Pearson Road. Yep. Okay. Yep. And just for reference, Yaya is Greek for grandma. It's grandma's chicken. And it's really fucking good. It's and it's grilled, not fried. Broiled and yeah, flame broiled. Like it is utter decadence. Ooh, I might have to try that. I went to uh, Chicago last week and on my way down there, I stopped at a chicken place. I wasn't paying attention. I was starving. And I had to ask my buddies, like, hey, is this is this the chicken place that's okay? Or is this the one that hates gay people? And all the conservatives in this family meeting whipped their head around and stared at me. And they's like, no, that's the good chicken. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <yeah>. good. <laughs> I pissed off three of my uncles asking about gay hate and chicken. <laughs> good. Good. Pissing people off for the right reasons. Did, did you take the moment to educate them? Like, listen. <laughs> chicken that's homophobic as fuck. Uh, anyway. Oh, oh man, all I'm seeing, all I'm seeing is that the Doomslayer meme where he's in hell saying the cow said hello. <laughs> oh, God. But instead of demons, it's ch- gay hating chickens. Damn. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, back to the picture now <laughs> of like chickens dressed up and holding signs like what the fucking Westboro Baptist Church would have. You know? Oh dear God. Okay, you know, so... that's an organization I haven't heard about in a while. Have they been like burned down or something? Fuck or... I hope. I mean, whatever happened to the Pride House across the street? You know, they paint, they painted it fucking rainbow flag. Listen, I'm not always the one to say burn down your local church, but if your local church is the Westboro Baptist <laughs> Church, burn that motherfucker down. Do us all a favor. Yes. Anyway, so back to the book. Uh, Stokely definitely agreed to come. We drove around for the rest of that day and talked in the car. The next day we left Stokely off at the SNCC office, cut out to the airport and flew back to Oakland. We told the Peace and Freedom Party that everything was set up and that we were going to have a major rally. We knew that Stokely would definitely speak, so we put things into motion. We publicized the event in the black community and they did the same thing in the white community. We brought Stokely out a little early to visit Huey. There was a lot of press coverage, and a lot of people realized that it was time to come out for QEP Newton. It was one of the biggest rallies that ever took place in Oakland. Besides Stokely, Rap Brown and James Foreman of the SNCC showed up. It had become clear to Stokely, to Foreman, to Rap Brown, and to a lot of other people that Brother Huey P. Newton, the Minister of Defense of the Black Panther Party, had become the central leader of the revolutionary movement that was coming out of the black community on a new and higher level than it ever had before. The place was packed. Stokely, Eldridge, and I could hardly get into the Oakland Auditorium ourselves. When we first announced the rally, we said that we didn't want any cops in or around the auditorium. We said that we would take care of all the traffic direction ourselves and that we had enough Panther Party members to do this. 
We said the community would support us in this. A few days before the rally, Chief Gain of the Oakland, Oakland PD called up the party. Eldridge and Emery Doug, Douglas went up to talk to some of his uh, lieutenants and captains. Eldridge told them flat that we didn't want any cops on the premises and that we would take care of the whole thing. The cops tried to shake hands with Eldridge, but Eldridge told them, I don't want to shake hands with you. I'm just letting you know that we don't need any cops around the auditorium. And there were none, not a pig in sight. And naturally there was no rioting. It was Stokely's first speaking engagement since he returned from his world tour. That was very important because it linked up SNCC with the Black Panther Party, although many people in SNCC were in disagreement with Stokely at that time. We had met with James Foreman in Los Angeles about a week after we came back from Washington. We had talked about us working with the party and we told them that we wanted that kind of alliance. But Foreman was definitely making a Stokely Carmichael, definitely against us, sorry, making Stokely Carmichael the honorary prime minister of the Black Panther Party. He thought we should make Rat Brown the honorary prime minister. We saw then that there were fractional differences inside of the SNCC. There was Rat Brown running on one end with James Foreman directing things and Stokely on the other end directing his own thing. So we decided that if they all accepted um, the 10 point uh, platform and program, we'd make Stokely Carmichael the honorary prime minister, James Foreman, the minister of foreign affairs and brother Rap Brown, the minister of justice of the Black Panther Party. We thought that would give us a good group of black revolutionary leaders to unify the black liberation struggle across the country. So we had an SNCC Panther Alliance. The Alliance was supposed to be practical and functional. They wholly accepted being special kind uh, of officers in the Black Panther Party, which indicated that they saw the Panther Party as a revolutionary organization, which a lot of black people were sitting up and taking notice of with both our political line and our stand on the right to self-defense. Um, I just want to interject here to say who that could be in these communities would have any question in their mind that the Panther Party was a revolutionary organization. Right. The Black Panther Party was a revolutionary organization before they were the Black Panther Party. <laughs> right. Um, I'm surprised any of them were confused about that, but okay. Right, right. I don't think that anybody that ever talked to Huey P. Newton thought was confused on that tip. Um, anyway, we felt that these brothers should work with the party. We were uh, attracting thousands of young brothers off the streets, cats who in the past had been in riots and what have you. We were also getting people from other organizations who were dropping their old groups and coming to check out the Panther Party, except for bootlickers who were definitely afraid of cops and weren't about to mess with them whatsoever. James Foreman was going to be the head of a most profound and necessary political education program. He had spent a lot of time with me and Eldridge while we were down in Los Angeles. We asked Foreman to come to Oakland too, and he said he'd definitely be there. Foreman was playing politics, though, and his strategy was to try to keep the Panthers weak. Stokely, at this time, was only a field marshal in the Black Panther Party. We had drafted him as a field marshal seven or eight months before, and he accepted the draft. Foreman told us, again, that he thought we should make Rat Brown Prime Minister instead of Stokely. So what we wound up doing was trying to bring them all into the party. This was going to be the basis of the alliance, a working alliance, where united 
we would work together for the liberation struggle, and they accepted this idea. At the rally, Eldridge announced that we were making Stokely Carmichael Prime Minister, James Foreman Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Rat Brown Minister of Justice. Foreman and Brother Rat Brown were also heads of SNCC at the time, but uh, and we respected him as that. Everyone turned out. There was a huge crowd at the rally. Rat Brown showed up by surprise. Nobody actually knew he was coming until the last minute. Uh, James Foreman set that up to strengthen SNCC. The rally came off. It came off real good. As Eldridge put it, it was the biggest lineup of revolutionary leaders that had ever come together under one roof in the history of America. Fuck yeah. That was just about the truth, because Eldridge and myself, Alprentice Bunchy Carter, David Milliard, Stokely Foreman, and Rat Brown were all there. We set Huey's chair in the center, the wicker chair that many people have seen in the picture where he's holding the spear, the shotgun, and the shield, exemplifying the right to self-defense. This in itself made a big impact, a very big impact. We raised some $10,000 at that rally for Huey's defense fund. It was the biggest fundraising operation on Huey's behalf that had ever gone down. At that time, it was the largest we'd ever had, and we really needed the money because Gary's whole firm was working on Huey's case on an almost around-the-clock basis. They must have been in the, the hole for like $30,000 on us by then. After uh, Stokely spoke at our big rally, we had had numerous speaking engagements through the San Francisco, Oakland Bay area, down in LA, and all over California. Uh, the last speaking engagement we had was on a Saturday night in Palo Alto. That night, the Berkeley police raided my house and arrested me. And I think we should cut it there. We usually try to keep these pieces about 90 minutes, but today I felt like we should go for about two hours or so to kind of make up for, you know, getting off topic last week. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're over halfway through now, and the shit's really going down at this point. make notes there page 128 yeah page 128 the chapter is breaking down our doors um natalie said revolutionary and had the skills to organize our government got scared and we know the rest and that's exactly true that's exactly true they started you know doing these free huey rallies and they had thousands of people joining the party the Black Panther Party, the Marxist-Leninist Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party that had guns. The Black Panther Party that wanted to overthrow the state. The Black Panther Party that wanted to implement social programs to make the state irrelevant. The government got real fucking scared. James? It took them multiple seasons to come back from that three-hour tour, and I'm pretty sure at the end of the <laughs> series they found out that they weren't lost to begin with. That being said, as much as I would love to be Gilligan, because let's face it, who else would I be? I don't have the legs to be any of the any of the females. I forget who their names were. It's been so long. But yeah, that just doesn't sound like a good three-hour tour and yes yes i'm old enough to get the reference <laughs> um so yeah we'll ma i'll make a note in uh slack page 128 uh what 
was the name of the chapter? Breaking, Breaking down, down our doors. doors. <clears throat> well, Rob's doing that. I'm going to take some time to promote some other things. Uh, not necessarily related to the podcast, but just some other things to fill this space while Rob is typing, unless he's done typing now. I'm already done typing, bro. Oh, uh, son of a bitch. Okay. Son of a bitch. I mean, you can you can say whatever you're going to say. I'm just about to plug podcast shit, that's all. Okay, okay. So real quick, um, <clears throat> if anybody listening to this now or in the future possibly likes um, the video game Halo, the Halo franchise, go to YouTube.com, check out the uh, YouTube channel Installation00. Um uh, the, the guy that runs it does amazing work using real world science to break down the technology used in the Halo universe. And a lot of it seems very, very doable in a real world setting. He's in fact in the process of making the Mjolnir Mark IV Spartan armor that is famously on master chief um in real life just making it right now just wanted to promote that because it's a pretty awesome community if you like halo um i know that some people don't like halo but anyway other than that um if anybody needs any artwork done voice acting hit me up on facebook uh my Art page is titled The Art of D.W. Hughes. Go check it out. I haven't posted anything in a while. Um, been busy remodeling the house and stuff like that. But I will be posting there shortly. I have some, some things I've been working on that I want to share with everybody. Other than that, I don't have any more announcements. Um, my son will be born in August, which is pretty exciting. Congrats in the chat for Don. That's all I had, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, since I'm sure we're one of the groups and pages that has been uh, uh, hit with the test prompts, you know, the test uh, prompts. Ah, uh, the test prompts. Has anybody seen a pop up from Facebook today that that is concerned about your are asking if you were concerned about your friends radicalizing or becoming an extremist or however the fuck they worded it. I haven't, I've seen the screenshots that everybody shared, but yeah. I have been off Facebook most of the day doing like flooring and stuff like that. So, well, let's be real. Leanne did the flooring. I stood there and tried to not fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> Give credit where credit is due. Yeah, I, I I can do a lot of things. Flooring, installing, installing snap-in flooring is not one of them. Did you guys know that the seam isn't supposed to run, like, in one uniform pattern? Because I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, this, this article, apparently, you know, like... They had to reach out to a Facebook spo uh, spokesperson because enough people were like, yo, what the fuck is this? Um, 
This test is a part of our larger work to assess ways to provide resources and support to people on Facebook who may have engaged with or were exposed to extremist content or may know someone who is at risk. We are partnering with NGOs and academic experts in this space and hope to have more to share in the future. One of the alerts, a screen grab, which you've probably all seen today. Are you concerned that someone you know is becoming an extremist? We care about preventing extremism on Facebook, explain that alert, according to a screen grab posted on social media. Others in your situation have received confidential support. Here's my advice. Don't be a snitch. <laughs> this is the dumbest shit. Right. Violent, violent groups try to manipulate your anger, another alert reads. You can take action now to protect yourself and others. Man. Anyway, I just wanted to talk about that because... Uh, if anything real strange happens and the page gets taken down or the group gets taken down, this is why. Look for us. We'll be out there. We'll probably be using our own damn website again if that's the case, but we'll be out there. We'll still be here every Monday and every Thursday. We'll still be on podcast platforms. And I mean, right now, YouTube is not cracking down nearly as much. So if we get shut down on Facebook, that'll probably be the next step is YouTube. I just want you all to know this because we have been targeted by uh, Facebook's algorithm pertaining to extremism, which I don't really understand. I mean, we're preaching peace, love, and self-defense, and we're the extremists. Right. Like Worst case scenario. We're ethical extremists. Oh, my God. We really want everyone to have housing, food, water, shelter. Worst case scenario, we could always organize a old school snail mail newsletter. True. I mean, I'm not opposed to that, honestly. Let us know, like, uh, in the comments of this video or just directly on our page or in one of the groups. If you guys are down for a paper newsletter, we can do that. Yeah, we, for sure. We've kind of fallen off of our article writing, but like, if it's actually getting read, I'm fucking down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we could probably even do a poll, run a poll in the uh, on the page. And I mean, the only the only cost that we would need for that is postage, really, postage and paper. Yeah. So I mean, you know, like do do a, what like a monthly newsletter like you know a newspaper type thing i'd be totally down with that either that or we're gonna have to go extremely old school and i'm gonna just do smoke signals man that takes too long to send a meaningful message true and if the wind's wrong if the wind's wrong it becomes illegible and you just you don't know what i'm saying <laughs> right um anyway so let alone anywhere else <laughs> right but so i wanted to you know go back over everything for we are many podcast at gmail.com patreon.com slash for we are many for we are many.org 
uh, For We Are Many Podcast on YouTube, at For We Are Many Podcast on Instagram and TikTok, at For We Are Many 2 um, on Twitter, and then we have our education and discussion group, formerly known as the support group, and our mutual aid organizing group. Um, I think that about covers it really, uh, keep an eye on the page, keep an eye on the group. If, like I said, if we do get banned, we will hopefully be able to let you know some way or another. Um, in the meantime, I've been noticing we've been getting a lot more interaction in the group than on the page. That's so that has become the primary place that I've been posting. I've been putting stuff on the page and then immediately sharing it from the page to both groups. So all avenues are covered regardless of where it, you know. Wait, to both groups? I thought we were only using the mutual aid organizing group for mutual aid stuff. If it's relative to that, then I share it. Oh, okay. I gotcha. I was just like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> um, or if it's just something funny that I think everybody will enjoy, it's sometimes you gotta laugh. You gotta be able to find the fucking humor in life. So, funny shit I'll share in both. That's fair. The last things I want to say are... Well, actually, the last thing I want to say is a John Banner quote. Tucker Carlson... Or, sorry, no, I apologize. I misquoted John Banner. Ted Cruz... Go fuck yourself. Indeed. I feel like that's a good that's a good spot to You could have just cut it right there, Rob. <laughs> Would have been cold. Like pussy is still dry and somebody needs to help her. Damn. Isn't this like 80s esque music great? (laughs) 